we had, you know, we had one guy that um, he tried to impersonate a fire marshal by go he was going into an elementary school. And I think he was trying to pick up teachers and was trying to impress them. Um, and um, we got onto him and we put that guy under surveillance and we saw him loading a car up in an apartment complex. And when we went up to the car to talk to him, he had fire gear in the car. logbook podcast i'm your host robbie dawson and today's guest is a former fire marshal colleague of mine and a fellow virginia fire marshal academy classmate who is now an author so with that please welcome retired chief deputy fire marshal from the city of alexandria virginia bob luckett bob thanks for being with me appreciate you being on robbie it's great to see you again and i appreciate the opportunity to come and chat with you Oh man, it's been a while, and uh, I'll share with you my my best recollection of our fire marshal academy time together. Oh and every time I every time I think about it, I start chuckling. And I, you probably may not even remember it, but uh, I think we were at Fort Pickett. We were doing um, um, role playing traffic stops, <laughs> and you were driving your I think it was a Crown Vic or a, your county or city car, and. Um, you put on a Rastafarian wig and yep. sunglasses and yep. your job was just to be the biggest pain in the ass to the officer who was stopping you. And I was that guy. Did I do a good job? You did a fantastic job. But <laughs> the problem was I, I kept laughing at you so hard. I kept, I kept, I kept breaking up and Bobby Bailey, I think it was behind me. He had gone, man, we gotta be serious. And I'm like, can you be serious looking at this? Come on, come on. It's, it's Bob with Rasta hair. And it's, it's so, yeah, yeah, that was, a lot of good memories, but that one always sticks with me. So we had a lot of good good times in that class for sure. That was a good class. Really I think the thing class. that sticks out to me is when they lined us all up and they were uh, in in the dorm and they were doing about eating the donuts like in the Marine camp and they were again it was me and they were chewing my chewing my rear end out uh, about eating donuts and. Uh, Ricky Morfield uh, you know, playing the role of Arlie Army. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But all those guys, uh, Greg Beitzel and uh and uh they they uh they messed with our heads the whole time that we were there. But I think we got and learned a lot of valuable things that we took on and probably still use today too. Uh, agreed. And uh I think uh Ricky and I were having a conversation toward the end and I was, I was like asking I said some of this stuff just doesn't make sense and he when once he explained to why he said it's a it's an abbreviated time frame we're trying to cram, you know, 12 weeks of stuff into a 6 week window here and uh, we've got to do this to put you under stress to see how you react to make yeah. sure that you're going to react right. in the field. And I was like, "Oh, oh, oh, now it does make sense." So right. uh, there was a method to the madness for sure. sure. We didn't understand, and, uh, and um, I'm sure at times we didn't like it, but it, Agreed. it, was, it was fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go back a little ways, then, and just uh, how did you get started in the fire service? Um, you know, we may, may bring up your f football career in the middle of, and sometime here today, too, but uh, but let's start with the fire department. How did you get into the Alexander well, Fire Well, as a young boy, I lived three doors away from a firehouse. Um, and in those days, um, the doors were not on automatic door openers. 
they had ropes and when they went out on a run the doors stayed up unless somebody came into the station and pulled the doors down so at a very young age of maybe six or seven um, and there were still house sirens on the building again two doors away um, if I would hear the house siren go off I would I'd leave my house at seven or eight years old and go to the firehouse and uh, most of the time I would take a chair and just sit in the engine bay and wait till till they came back I was I was the mascot if you will <laughs> I don't know that I look like a Dalmatian but that's what I would do. And then, um, you know, the, the firehouse was kind of the neighborhood kid outlet. They had a soda machine and a candy machine. And, you know, they, they, that was part of their coffee fund, if you will. And, you know, they, they bought niceties for the fire station, but every kid in the neighborhood, and there was an elementary school on the next block. So you get out of school, you went to the firehouse on your way home and you bought a you know, you bought a soda and you got some candy and you and you went the rest of the way. So the community was always there. Um, as I got older um, and could pull the doors down, they kind of felt like, well, wow, if you're going to do this, maybe we'll get you some boots. And so I would keep my boots, three-quarter boots, not bunker pants, three-quarter boots next to my bed in my home. You know, 10, 11, 12 years old. And when the house siren would go off, I would jump up out of bed and jump into boots and walk down the street and go to the firehouse and hang out, watch TV until they came back. That was my job. And finally, maybe about 13, they said, you know, we're not supposed to do this, but if you're here and you're hanging out and we get a call, they would just put me in the jump seat. And I would, you know, could get tucked back in the jump seat and of course in those days everybody was still riding the back step and I got I was going on calls. Um when I was fourteen, um I was had friends that were older that were in high school and could drive. We were chasing fire trucks. You know, that was in your car, in their cars. In their car. Um and they didn't, they didn't have a juniors program. So you had to be 18 to get in. But this was a, this was a volunteer station. It, volunteer it was all paid, but there each station had volunteers. Okay. So, um, but you had to be 18. So when I was 16 and could drive, I was, I was still chasing. My father was very close friends to, to the fire chief, Milton Penn at the time. And he went and had a meeting with Chief Penn and said, look, my son's chasing these fire trucks. And, you know, is there any is there anything that we can do that I can do to kind of maybe change that and get him out of driving 100 miles an hour and try to chase you guys? So the chief said, well, OK, Mr. Luckett, if you'll sign some papers, we'll let Bobby join the volunteers at 16 and he can he can become active. So I, I did, and, you know, I was, I can remember in those days, it was still canister masks in the, in the mid to late sixties. Um, and they would, they had a whole coal, coal chute in the back of the fire station. They would take piping and hook it together and 
hook a hose to it so the sprinkler heads would go off and they'd practice going down and taking the wooden chocks and jamming them in the in the sprinkler heads but they would also go and set fires in the basement in this cold firehouse at the firehouse and you would just go down in there in your gear and sit out just so that you could get used to being in the heat and of course without breathing apparatus or the yeah you just had a canister mask you just take the piece of tape off of the bottom and all you were doing was breathing smoke and it was going through that big filter filter. Uh, one day they actually set a fire and the battalion chief uh, chief dareman came to the station and said look we're getting reports of smoke in the area and what it was it was thick black smoke that was coming out of the coal chute in the back of the station now this this he was an older battalion chief and he had terrible eyesight he had coke thick glasses well one guy was in the front trying to keep him busy and they had actually pulled the, the booster line which in those days was on the back of the engine they had pulled the booster line off and were trying to put the fire out in the basement before the battalion before walked in the back. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, those were things things like that. I mean, I just grew up around the fire station. I could tell you a story one time. I was in eighth or ninth grade, and my father told me to get a haircut, and I, you know, was sassed him and back-talked him, and I said, yeah, I'll, I'll get one. Don't worry about it. And he called down the fire station and said, look, you know, I, I told Bobby to get a haircut, and he you know, he's not doing it. And y'all think you can help me out? They said, Mr. Luckett, will take care of it. And so they actually chased me down. And in those days, they used to carry um, cheesecloth in their in their pants so they could wipe down. And they, they wore the old uh, gabardine, uh, what we call jeans, but it, they had the loop in the side like painter's pants. Painter's pants yeah. And they used to carry pieces of cheesecloth in there. Well, I was came in the station, was walking up from the back to the front between two pieces of apparatus, and there were two guys laying under the one under the ladder truck and one under the engine, and they grabbed me and tackled me and took the cheesecloth that they had and tied my hands and feet. Ambushed. They, they brought the station captain out, and he took a pair of scissors and in the middle of my head cut my hair right down to the scalp, and they said, now go get a haircut, young man. Next time your father tells you to get a haircut, you'll get a haircut. Well, then I had to go get a haircut because they had cut it so close. I had to get a flat top. I couldn't be the cool guy with the nice hair anymore. So Thanks, Thanks guy. They taught me a lesson. Um, when I went to college, I went to college to, to Bridgewater College. I went to college to play football and nothing else. I could have cared less about anything else. And my my – plan was is that I was going to become a school teacher and hopefully coach athletics. Um, needless to say that didn't work out because I spent too much time playing and not enough time studying. So I got put on on, on academic probation. And when I got put on academic probation and they said you're not going to be able to play ball this year until you bring your grade point average up, I quit and came back home and got into community college. And my father said, I wanted a new car. And my father said, look, you can stay in college and I'll keep paying for it. Or if you want a new car, you got to get a job. 
I had to get a job. Wanted a new car. So I didn't really know much anything else. Uh, again, early to mid-70s, 75. So the Alexander Fire Department was hiring, and they were hiring their their first group of paramedics. So I had taken the test for all the local departments, Alexander, Arlington, Fairfax, and Alexander happened to be the first to call, and I got in the very first paramedic recruit school that the state of Virginia ever had in Alexandria. Of course, in those days, they were called EMTCs, EMT cardiac. Cardiacs, yeah. What um, year was that? 1976. 76. <laughs> were you even born then? I was. I won't tell you how old I was, but I was yeah. around. But you were young, I'm sure. I, 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 I was an EMT cardiac as well, so that ought to give you some kind okay. of... Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, you're close. So, um, and But because we took, Alexander decided to make it more in-depth than the cardiac requirements were for the state of Virginia. We actually went to school at Alexander Hospital, and our class was taught by the docs and the nurses from there. So I got in the first recruit school and did maybe eight years in EMS and took the promotional exam and went into the fire marshal's office in 1985, maybe 86. And went to, in those days, we went to the police academy and had to become a police officer. Uh, it was 18 weeks. And then when I got out of the police academy, um, the state decided that they were going to start having a fire marshal academy because too many local localities were calling them and saying, hey, we, we, you know, we need to do something where we get these people trained, but we can't afford to lose them for 18 or 20 weeks at a time. You know, is there some way that we can, you guys can develop some program that they're getting the basics that they can get certified, but not be gone for that long. And the class that you and I took together in 2002 was a, was a product of that request. It was a condensed version, but the Department of Criminal Justice recognized it as being a full-fledged law enforcement academy. Yeah, and So uh, I went through that in 87, maybe. Uh, I met Russ Chandler in 87 or 88. We both were at the FBI Academy, and we took an arson school, a 40-hour arson school together at the F FBI Academy in Quantico. That's when I, he and I first met. And then stayed in the fire marshal's office. Um, I transferred out, got into inspections, became a non-supervisor in communications, and then took the test and went back and got promoted to chief deputy. And then I finished my career there. So, wow. so it, it was a long career for sure. When you, when you first went into the fire marshal's office, were was that just for investigations? And then you made the inspections leap later on, or did you do uh, both back they, in the first They period? did some inspections uh, as it related to um, hazard permits. You know, again, that was allowed under the Virginia State Fire Prevention Code. So, every, you know, if you had compressed gas or you did a, a high occupancy place or things like that, the fire marshals would go in and inspect. 
Um, so it got into that, but then eventually uh, Alexander developed um, what they call property maintenance inspectors. So they were actually going and, and inspecting the interiors uh, of, of properties, whereas before to do in property inspections, you would only do the exterior, if you right. will. Um, and I got into that and did that for six or seven years before I, I got back into the fire marshal's office. So. Cool. And I think that might be why you know, you went up going through the that police the full on police academy your first tour, and yep. then we wound up going through the the Virginia Fire Marshal's Academy. And maybe that's why they were. I think the instructors knew you had gone through the they did through the full course before, and they they might have put you in some of those role playing scenarios on purpose. Maybe they did that. Yeah, and, and, and later on they they said that, and then and I even um, once I got out, I I got to go back and be part of their cadre to teach. I was teaching right of entry and things like that for the fire marshal camp. So it was a lot of fun, but yeah. Uh, yeah, while they gave me some leeway to do some of that stuff, they also liked keeping their foot on my neck to make sure I towed the line too. So oh, you wouldn't have stepped across any lines. Yeah. I right. Know, I, know that. I wouldn't have broken. I just stepped over. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, um, other than the, probably the biggest uh, case you worked that we'll talk about more in depth, any, any other real big, um, kind of cases or calls you were involved with over your career in Alexandria that uh, kind of come to mind? Wow. Um, they're probably too numerous to think about. I, I'll tell you about two cases. One case that we had was the police station in Alexandria was set on fire inside and it was multiple fires. It was, there was one fire that was set outside of the, one of the deputy chief's offices. There was a fire that was set in front of, of an elevator that the people that worked in communications, because the communications center was inside the police station, would have had to use to get out. There was a fire set in front of that. And then there was another smaller fire set in, the bathroom, uh, the women's locker room on the first floor headquarters. Um, that was a case that we worked uh, probably 72 hours straight. Um, I don't know that I had two or three hours sleep in the course of that fire investigation. And as it turned out, it was a part-time employee, um, female, and she had some emotional problems and the deputy chief's office that she had set the fire in front of, um, he had reprimanded her for something and, um, she had it in for him and set the fire. And of course we, we ended up catching her. Um, we caught her, we got onto her in the first place because she, uh, used her entry card to come in a doorway one she shouldn't have never come in that doorway and she was in in the building at three or four o'clock in the morning and so when we did a printout on that and we were looking at people um she showed up on that now here's an interesting note when i got the call at home that this incident had happened um i gave direction to shut everything down to shut the parking lot down 
no entry, no exit. Anybody that was there needed to stay there. I wanted police officers at both entry and exit points and just to lock it down. We didn't know what was going on at the time. We didn't know if we had other devices or what was going on. That young lady that set that fire got caught in that. She was in the parking lot and um, had had to be interviewed, in essence, before she could leave. So then when we saw she was in the building at that, kind of, that time of day, she had no reason to be, be in there, and then she was there for that and gave began to compare stories and it didn't add up. And then um, she had used um, some products that were available only in a couple stores um, to, to be her devices. We went to those stores. We knew where she lived. One of those stores happened to be in close proximity to her home. Uh, we ended up going to her house and we interviewed her mother uh, unbeknownst to us, the girl was in the house at the time. So, um, 72 hours later, we ended up catching her, getting her. She ended up confessing in wow. that one. So that was an extremely interesting. And then I guess probably the last one I would tell you about again in investigations in Alexandria, they have police officers that go out and live in the community. So it might be a, an apartment complex that there's a lot of crime in and they want to try to make that better. So a police officer will go actually live in the complex. They, of course, live rent-free. And they're, in essence, an on-site security force for, the, for that community. And hopefully along the way, they improve things in the community. So... Uh, we had a female police officer and her daughter who lived in a community. And we get a call um, middle, of, middle of the night, early morning hours, and her cruiser's been set on fire in the parking lot. And um, they actually took the gas cap off and stuck a rag down in there and lit that on fire. And then they lit a fire underneath the hood. <clears throat> while the companies are finishing that uh, incident and are ready to clear about two blocks away from that apartment complex in a high rise, and that was a garden style apartment complex in a high rise apartment complex, they get a call for an automobile fire and they go to the auto, go to the call and the automobile fire and they have a fully involved uh, car. Um, and, the car turned out to be the personal car of the very same police officer whose cruiser had been set on fire. She parked two blocks away knowing it was not the best neighborhood. And so she'd park away. Well, obviously when that happened, we knew something. she had a convertible. They had slit the top of the car, ripped that open and then set the car on fire. Um, long and short of it after the investigation, uh, unreal. We developed uh, three suspects in the case, and interestingly enough, one of the suspects was the son of one of the deputy chiefs in the fire department. Oh wow! And um, you you know that 
you know, the old adage of telephone, telegraph, but never tell a fireman because once you tell them, everybody's going to know. So with that piece of information and trying to keep it on a closed lid while the investigation was going on was an extremely difficult process. Uh, the the young son, um, he was he was an ass, and uh, when I confronted him on the street one day and trying to talk to him, I told him that you're an ass, and I know you did it, and right now I can't prove it, but I'm going to, and I'm going to cherish the day that I handcuff your ass. That's what I told him. When the time came and we knew, and the reason that we got him is that another kid, one of the other two kids in the group, flipped and gave us everything. There you go. And when the and when the time came to go get him, I was there, but I didn't I allowed my staff to arrest him. And then we, when we had him arrested, I had to call the chief fire marshal and have him go grab the boy's father and tell him that his son had been arrested for arson. That was a tough one. That's a tough day in the office, yeah. Yeah. So, and that was hard all around. Um, and that was the first time that that kid had been in trouble, but he still went away for a year. So, well, he went big, I guess, first round. Yeah. Huh? Right. Yeah. So, those are the two most memorable calls I'll give you. Well, there's probably one other, or actually a group of them out there now that uh, this book thing I mentioned in the intro, you're an author as well. And I'll go back to, it must have been, I don't know, 03 or 04, 05. It was in the in the course of what you were doing in Northern Virginia and Maryland and D.C. Okay. Somebody from the ATF came into the Central Virginia Fire and Arson meeting and said, hey, we just want to brief you guys on this series of arsons that's happening up around D.C. and Northern Virginia and kind of gave right. us a kind of a high-level view of it. Nothing – I can't remember the details that I know now because of all the things that have come out. Yeah, but sure. it's like, you know, late at night, exterior fire, single-family, multi-family yeah. dwellings. Here's kind of the big picture. If you yep. see this, yep. call us because right. it might be – you might be moving Our south. guy might expand into where you are. Right. So, uh, so that was kind of my first introduction to what – I think became known as the DC serial arsonist. Correct. And, uh, and ultimately uh, you became part of that task force working in, in and around that region. And uh, uh, ultimately that group uh, got their man, uh, Mr. Thomas Sweat um, was convicted of a number of arsons and uh, actually a couple of them were fatal fires, if I remember correctly as well. Yeah. But uh, you've just, you've gone forward and written a book. The title of that book is, uh, solving for X, tracking the DC serial arsonist, and inside looking to, into at the investigation that captured Thomas Anthony Sweat. So, uh, so tell me a little bit about. Let's go back to you, you were part of that task force. How did you know the, the the fire started? And if I'm not mistaken, PG County, Maryland, and DC, and then you came into it a little bit later. Tell they me a little did. bit about how about the fire background before okay. that, and how you got into that I'll be, task force. I'll start by addressing what you said about people coming and giving you all more or less a roll call training at your various groups is that the task force just 
decided that we needed to get that information into the hands of as many people as possible. Remember, now we're having, at the time, there were fires in two states, and I called D.C. the District of Columbia state. It's often referred to as the 51st state. So right. it, at the time, it was Maryland and D.C., and then he ventured into Virginia, and so now we have it in three states. So the decision was made that we were going to contact as many fire agencies and law enforcement agencies in those three states as we could with the basic information. Nighttime between mid midnight and, and 6 a.m., outside fires in front of an entrance, either front or back, in occupied dwellings. Okay, and, and so that's kind of how we re reached out to your central Virginia arson. We, were, we did the Northern Virginia Joint Task Force. We, we did tons of them. And at the same time, we were going to as many local law enforcement agencies and doing roll call training for them in that with the thought process that they would come across this individual probably more so than the fire service people because they're out dealing with the criminal element. And so we were doing roll call trainings and um, it didn't make any difference what your position was within the task force. Everybody did it. Now the task force was set up with PG and DC to begin with. And obviously ATF PG had experienced like 10 or 11 of these fires and um, not much was going on with it and they weren't really addressing it because PG has so many fires daily as does the district. And um, they got together and compared notes and decided, Oh, we're having the same kinds of fires. Maybe there's a little bit more to it than that. And we need to look at it a little bit closer. So they went to ATF and said, Hey, you know, we have this arson task force group here. You know, we maybe need to form a, a task force to look at these fires. And ATF came in, and they did. And as a result of that, they said, if you know, if, if we get any other jurisdictions that are involved, we'll invite them to be part of the task force, and we'll we'll give them a seat at the supervisory level. Not thinking at any point in time they'd ever get another jurisdiction involved because. DC and PG cover such a, an expansive area. Four months into the investigation, there's uh, an arson in Alexandria on a Sunday morning, and um, Alexandria is invited to join the task force. Now, how did how did you were were they already doing those kind of roll call briefings with you guys? No, that they had not how, how did you? What I was basically knew about about what was going on just by news broadcast. So and, from the public, you know, you know, public just source. The public was aware. I only knew what was in the news um, and had heard some things. Um, and obviously you think about, well, I wonder if, if this ever came to my jurisdiction, what am I going to do? How am I going to handle it? You know, because I knew I'd be getting pressure from the politicians and everybody else. But they really don't know what's going on. And I knew Tom Daly. Um, Tom Daly was an ATF agent that I had worked uh, and met two or three years ago on, a, on, on an incident. Um, it was an old arson fire in Alexandria. 
he asked me to look into it. I found some files. I found some names and some files, and those names were happened to be people that I knew. And we went and interviewed them together. So, and I knew that he was uh, <clears throat> would have familiarity with this these incidents. So, we have a house fire. Um, it's a on the property of a nursing home, but you wouldn't know it. Uh, was a Scientology nursing home, and what they would do was bring in traveling nurses to care for the people in the nursing home, and when they were there on the property, they lived in this home, okay? So there was a, there was a fire set on the front porch, and the place was occupied one time by a, by a nurse. She was able to exit the rear door. I get a call from... Um, my investigator on the scene and he says, chief, you know, I, I kind of really don't know what I have. I have an outside fire. I was smelling gasoline uh, or some sort of what I think is a petroleum product. And I kind of really don't know much more than that. I've interviewed the lady, but I need to interview her more. So as per the course, I said, okay, I'm on the way. I'll be there. Um, when I'm going, I'm saying, eh, this doesn't sound right. You know, maybe it is the work of the arsonist, but I really don't know. So when I get on the scene and I look at it, there's really not much damage. There's a burn pile, um, and I'm not really seeing a whole lot. You know, it's burned up the siding on the front of the door. Maybe seven to $10,000 worth of damage. So I, I call Tom Daly, and I say, Tom, you know, um, I'm on the scene of this incident. And I'm not sure, based upon what I hear in the news broadcast, but can you kind of tell me what I need to look for? <clears throat> and he said, look, Bobby, a lot of, it's easy to miss this thing. He said a lot of times that what this guy's doing is he's kind of placing a, a device of some nature at the front of these places, and he's lighting it off, and then he leaves. And then when the, the investigators come out and they're – going through the burn pile, this device kind of gets caught up in the in the debris and gets shoveled into the into the pile. Overhauled to the dumpster. There you go. Yeah. So he said if you get it all the way down to the to the very bottom, most of the time they're seeing a circular pattern. And um, he said if it's a circular pattern, then you need to go to your burn pile and look in the burn pile and you're probably going to find the a burnt pile of something than a circle <clears throat> and he said yeah they are using they are using a combustible liquid and okay so i said okay let me go look and i'll call you back and maybe about 15 minutes later i'll call him back and i said everything you told me to to look for i think i'm seeing and the task force came out and we brought in a dog and the dog hit on the pile and so the next next day, that was a Sunday, that Monday morning, uh, I went to the fire chief and the chief fire marshal got together and decided who was going to go. And instead of sending the investigator that caught the case, they made the decision to send me. And the task force being true to their word when I brought on and was made a supervisor in the case. Uh, the case eventually ended up we ended up reorganizing 
We had an investigation section, an evidence section, and an administrative section. And they made me the supervisor of the investigation section. And so for the next 18 months, the, the case had been going on for four months. For the next 18 months, that's what I did. So this was, uh, kind of put it in time frame perspective, if I remember right, this was 03 or 04 when those ATF guys came down to the Richmond area. I think the of the things I've read or the, the training that I've recently seen that you were involved with for another friend of ours, Bill Fulton out of Wisconsin, yep. uh, th- this started in the summer months of 03. Correct. And wh- what time, about what time was the, was the fire in your jurisdiction? So that was a couple was months at, later. It was I. The fire in my jurisdiction was in November. Okay, so they they had been working essentially working the case for a few. Yeah, months they already. had J- July, August, September, and October. They had had already been going. And ha- by this point, how many how many fires had been attributed? Twenty some. So he he had twenty ID'd at this point under his belt. Yep. From that point, you know, so now we're talking the fall of '03. Correct. For the next 18 months, how many more fires did you guys ID? We had a total of 49. Um, 49 fires and one attempt um, is what our case was on. We visited in those 18 months 688 fire scenes. (laughs) Wow. How many, how many people ultimately were part of this task force? Uh, you, you mentioned PG and DC. And, and well, there ended up guys. being a ton. How many more jurisdictions got brought into this ultimately? It's like uh, 22 or 23 different um, agencies or jurisdictions. And at the peak of it, you know, we didn't really keep Close records, some people say 54, I say 64. So at the peak of our investigation, I think we had 64 people from Alexandria Fire, Alexandria Police, PG Fire and Police, D.C. Fire and Police, Maryland State Fire Marshals, Anne Arundel County, Howard County, um, Maryland State Police, and... ATF and it got to the point with ATF. ATF were bringing in agents from around the United States. They were bringing them in for 45 day stints. Uh, some of those guys ended up staying for 90 days, um, and uh, we were working it around the clock. So, give me some kind of an idea what the the work that was going on in that 18 months. I mean, you mentioned you were in part of the investigations. I know listening to some of the case studies of it, there were kind of ongoing overnight surveillance crews yep. uh, on call. Um, what what was kind of a typical day like for the group? Well, a typical day would start at 8 o'clock in the morning, and then we would do a briefing. And in that briefing, we would uh, discuss everything that happened in the, in the previous 24 hours, uh, most of the, whatever happened at night because we were chasing calls. And... Um, the, the marching order was if there's any outside fire uh, on a residential structure, try to get to it. Um, and what we ended up doing is we ended up breaking. Initially, they broke down to where they were having teams in D.C. and in P.G. And, of course, after he hit in Alexandria and we came on, 
now we're riding in D.C., Virginia, and PG. And shortly after he struck in Alexandria, then he hit in Fairfax County. So now we're trying to cover all those places. And obviously, we we always rode in two-person vehicles. You can't be every place at once. But you'd have a car riding in Virginia, you'd have a car riding in Maryland, and then you'd have a car riding in D.C., and you'd try to get to these calls. Um, now, how, how did we do that? We ended up having portable radios from those jurisdictions, and they'd be issued to the guys in the cars, and they'd be listening to the calls on their radio. And then they would get on. In those days, it was Nextel. So you had, uh, do you remember Nextel? I remember Nextel. Okay, so Nextel, Nextel's for your listeners were cell phones that also had a push-to-talk capability, just like a regular radio. And so a crew would be out and they might run a call in DC. They'd get on the next tell and call everybody and say, Hey, we got one. And then no matter where they were, if they were in Virginia and the call was in DC, then, you know, they're going 60 miles an hour to try to get to the incident. So that's how we worked. Then on top of that, um, we, we were getting leads, you know, people were calling in and telling us information or, from the fire scenes, we were developing information and then we would pass out the leads to people and people were following up on that. And eventually we had some work at night and some work in day, and then you would rotate over and some work day and some work night. And so, um, that's how it went for the next 18 months. And if we got onto somebody that was a suspect, you know, we'd put a team of people on that person and they would tail them, they would follow them and they would, you know, they do real estate records and they would do criminal history checks and they would do employment checks. And we did that you know, countless times. I think we ended up having, you know, and I don't have it in notes in front of me, but I think we had ended up in that, in that 22 months, we ended up having 268 viable that we thought were viable suspects. And, you know, we'd follow that bunny trail until it ended. And we would go someplace else. Out of that 260-some, did you ever uh, – obviously, that group wasn't the arsonist you were looking for. You got right. him ultimately. But right. out of that 260, did you come up with any other crimes that those oh, people Oh, a lot along the way. When we, You know, we would make cases for other jurisdictions along the way. And we had – you know, we had one guy that um, he tried to impersonate a fire marshal. by go He was going into an elementary school, and I think he was trying to pick up teachers and was trying to impress them. Um, and um, we got onto him and we put his, that guy under surveillance and we saw him loading a car up in an apartment complex. And when we went up to the car to talk to him, he had fire gear in the car. But not, he was not associated with the fire service. He was just a, no, a and he, he said he gave us a name and the name was a false, false name. And he told us that he worked for another area jurisdiction fire department. That was part of the task force. <laughs> and, didn't know who he was talking to, apparently. And he had stolen license plates on his car. Now he ended up going. To, he ended up being arrested and going to jail for lying to federal investigators. That's what he went for. He was uh -huh. not involved in our case. But he happened to look like a composite that we had 
of the guy. We had a guy that had black hair and had a white kind of like streak in it. And man, we thought we had to do. And I can tell you, my phone got blown up and, you know, saying congratulations and all this stuff. And it wasn't not, it. not the guy. No. So uh, ultimately what we're, uh, you know, I don't want to spoil anybody, anybody who wants to get the book and I would encourage them to do that. Cause I'm looking forward to getting my copy uh, that's on pre-order now to get a little bit more. Cause I, I like we, I mentioned to you earlier, the first time I knew you were part of that task force, I was at a, um, IAAI conference out in Denver. It's been a couple of years after the case and the, the, uh, the ATF agent was there kind of giving a case history and he talked about, you know, um, how the case unfolded and mentioned this guy from Alexandria, Bob Luckett, who was kind of instrumental in the case. And I went, I know that guy. <laughs> I went to law enforcement school with him. So, uh, right. so that was interesting, but, um, ultimately what were the things that the task force did that got to the suspect that ultimately wound up confessing to these fires? What was kind of the couple of the linchpin things and how did the task force work to get there? Wow. Um, there was a fire in Arlington County, Virginia, and that fire um, was an outside fire. The people from Arlington contacted me and said, look, we have this fire and uh, we think it was a candle on the back porch and was uh, soaked in gasoline. And we said, okay. And they said, um, in the yard next to it, they found some clothing. They found a pair of dress socks and they found, um, a Marine Corps hat. And about a block away, they found a pair of dress Marine Corps pants. Now, that seemed really interesting and it was in close. This fire happened to be in across the street from Fort Myers. <clears throat> so it wasn't a stretch to believe that <clears throat> we had collected some evidence first from some other scenes and um, DNA had been e- extracted from those, <clears throat> excuse me, from those pieces of evidence. Now, the first was um, the earlier fight, the earlier evidence. So of, yeah. of, of interest here is uh, I'm going to say if, if, if you ever thought there was DNA still available at fire scenes, when you were doing fire investigations early on, the answer would be, no, you didn't think that Did not you know. didn't think that DNA would survive in a fire. Um, you like me, probably always heard that a lot of times criminals would set fire to their evidence with the belief that it, the fire would burn the evidence up. Always believe that. Um, and we, we found that DNA was able to be extracted from physical evidence <clears throat> that we had been finding at various scenes. Um, so with that, we were proving for the first time in the United States, that DNA would survive in varying degrees of temperature in fire scenes. So that's number one. 
Number two is what kind of DNA were we getting? Um, and we were getting the, the results of the DNA were touch DNA. And again, for your listeners that may not be familiar, all of us, no matter what we do, if we touch something, we're leaving some of our DNA. It might be in the form of skin cells or sweat from the pores in our fingers or whatever. Um, and again, that, that was still relatively new to people in 2003 and was not much known about it. But um, as it turned out, we had four scenes where uh, DNA touch DNA was extracted from the physical evidence. Now, in the attempt that we talk about, um, a, a group of kids, three boys, brothers, pull up to their house at 4 o'clock in the morning in D.C., and there is a man sitting on their front steps. Um, and when that man sees the car pull up, he gets up and walks down the steps and walks over to the car and asks, they roll the window down and he asks them if they know some man. And those kids said, no, we don't know anybody like that. And with that, the guy walks away um, without going into a, a bunch of details. When they go back to their house, they find a bag that has a, a container full of gasoline in it and some cloth material, and they know nothing about the serial arsonist. They, their, their home was right across the street from a park. They started out by putting, going and putting it in the trash can in the park, and then they said, nah, maybe we better not do that. So the most logical place that you, where would you think would go, they put it in the sewer, Okay. Yeah, for teenagers, maybe that, yeah, okay, I could buy okay. that. Okay, yeah. inner city yeah. kids, teenagers, putting it in gotcha. the So their mother, the next morning, they're having a conversation with their mother, and they're t telling their mother what happened. And they stay up all night. The mother was out. And they stay up all night because they're afraid this guy was going to come back and try to rob their home or whatever. The mother says, what are you talking about? You know, and she, they explained it to her and she said, well, aren't you all familiar with the arson guy that's, you know, that there's somebody setting houses on fire. She calls DC police. <clears throat> there's a massive response. They're able to recover most of these things, the, the liquid and the bags and some material. And lo and behold, in one of the bags, there is a hair. And in that hair, they're able to get nuclear DNA. So that means there is a root available. And they they come back and say that more than likely it's an African-American male or a mixed race male. <clears throat> and so they have the DNA. Okay. And at this at this point, are you guys going, that's our guy? That's the one. Is there is there enough of a well, match between you know, what the we, device was? And we know that the they're working on the DNA and they're going to match the DNA from those sites to the DNA that they got from the nuclear hair. Well, we still don't know who it is. Right. But that's, that's the one, you know, you at least got somebody who has seen this guy right now, you know, it's a guy. Right. So we, 
we do an EFITS, which is a computer-generated sketch of the bad guy. And we now we have a sketch based upon what the witnesses supposedly say this guy looks like. I can tell you later on, in the beginning, they didn't see the sketch, but later on they look at the sketch and they say, no, that's, that's, not, that's, not, what, that's not the guy. Um, we, we brought in a, and I don't want to, we, we ended up getting a second sketch. I won't tell you how we got it, that they particularly didn't like that sketch either. And when we got on to Mr. Thomas Sweat as the suspect and we had a picture of him, we took that picture and showed it to all three of them and not one of them picked him out. Hmm. So that just goes to tell you. Eyewitness testimony not is nothing more than a tool that you know it's may not be the best thing. So when we got on to Sweat and how we got on to him was a visit with the military because we went to the military at Eighth and I Marine Corps headquarters at Eighth and I and said after we had the Arlington fire and we had these Marine Corps things, we thought perhaps the person was in the Marines. So we wanted them to give us DNA. And they said, well, okay, give us his name. And if you give us his name, we'll give you <laughs> DNA. And we said, well, if we had a name, what the hell would we be doing? We need DNA. So we found out that the military stores raw DNA and they store it at a place in Hawaii and the reason behind that is, is our platoon goes out and gets wiped out. They can take those pieces and compare it to the DNA for that platoon and tell you who it is. Yeah, the but right they remains to the right family. From there, right. From that, yeah. So they, they don't know that they don't keep that name file, if you will, like that. So we were bummed. We, we, had, we, we knew we were going to go there and get this and come away. And as we were leaving, the NCIS says, well, look, you know, we had some arson fires here a couple of years ago that were never solved. Okay. And we have some video and we have some pictures and we'll be glad to give them to you. One of those people ended up being Thomas Sweat. And we began to surveil him. And in the end, and the decision was made to interview him and Scott Fulkelson, who was our case agent and Frank Molino, who was a homicide detective in DC interviewed sweat as his place of business. Uh, he was a manager for Kentucky fried chicken. After interviewing him, they were so convinced that he was not the serial arsonist. They asked him for his DNA. Now our plan was that we surreptitiously surreptitiously or we're going to get his DNA. They showed him a raincoat and said, you know, we found this and, you know, we want to know if it's yours. Would you take a look at it? And, you know, he looked at it. They put gloves on. He put gloves on. When they were finished, they took their gloves off and threw it on the ground. He took his gloves off and threw it on the ground. And that's how we were going to get his DNA. Now okay, it's trash. So now, now it's not in your possession. That's right. Now, now you don't have to worry domain. about all those things. Public domain. But they were so convinced that he was not the serial arsonist that they they asked him if he would give him their DNA. And he said, sure. 
later on because he was that was he that confident that there was no dna his dna at the fire scenes because it all burned up or what he only knew about dna he only thought dna was in blood and semen so he didn't think that there would be you know you you, you, buccal swab in my mouth you're not gonna find anything sure go ahead and later we get a phone call from montgomery county who was doing our dna work and they said hey Thomas Sweat is your is your serial arsonist, and uh, I happened to be the supervisor in charge of the surveillance team. That was we were on twenty four hours. We were working twelve on twelve off. Nobody goes home until we get this guy, and um, I was the supervisor in the day work. We were following him. He got away from us. We didn't know where he was. We ended up having an agent from West Virginia who was able to stay with him. We, we fought, we get catch back up. We get to him. He's at a Kentucky fried chicken somewhere in Maryland. They didn't go to his office in DC. Long story short, we're told to effect an arrest. Um, I block him trying to leave the parking lot, jump out of the car. And I'm actually the guy that handcuffed him and took him out of the car and placed him under arrest. Um, subsequent to that, that he was interviewed for about an hour and 45 minutes. Um, and he was denying everything, but he was looking at all the evidence that we had amassed over the last two years and an hour and 45 minutes in, he confessed to being the DC serial arsonist. And, um, he was continued to be interviewed for another four hours. Uh, they also introduced a video camera to the interview. Um, a week later, he uh, made a plea agreement. Um, again, I won't go into all the details because I want people to buy the book. But um, he, <laughs> where, where you can dive into all of the details. Yeah, really. Uh, he he uh, was sentenced to life in prison without parole and because of the charges and the ways that the court system did it he in essence was given two life sentences with no chance for a parole plus 136 years and 10 months um, he was sent to prison in Terre Haute Indiana uh, what's significant about that well Terre Haute Indiana is also the place that Timothy McVeigh was if anybody doesn't know who Timothy McVeigh was, he was the Oklahoma City bomber. Um, federal government sent myself, Scott Folkerson, and Tom Daly. We went to Terre Haute Prison and we interviewed Sweat there. Um, results of all that's in the book. Um, and Sweat continues to communicate with me from prison. Um, Did he know you were writing the book? He, he didn't, but I told him that and told him that I didn't have to ask him any questions or find out what his motives were because I already knew him. And he, the only thing that he said was that that was exciting um, and that if I ever did get the book published, would he would I sign a copy for him and send it to him in prison? He is now actually in prison to very close to where you are in Petersburg, Virginia. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Nice. So he, he went from Terre Haute, Indiana to Florida 
and then from Florida to the facility in Petersburg. And he asked to go there to be closer to his family who live right on the North Carolina, Virginia border. Right. So that's the closest federal facility. Now, um, you know, without going into it here, like you said, people ought to get the book cause they we're a little over an hour now and, uh, we could probably well, talk for another two. Yeah, uh, we probably could. Cause of, uh, you know, I, I set in on a couple of post-incident analysis and case. Sorry, I get long with it. Yeah, man, that's, that's, a, that's the best part about this. The time limit is however much memory I've got on this machine right here. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it, uh, just to say you, in your book, you do go, do you go into like the motives and why he was doing this and kind of some of his history? Yes. Here, here's what I'll tell here. Here's what I'll tell your listeners. Thomas Sweat, all of his fires were about sex and power. And that was all of his motivations were every time he was doing it, he was creating a sexual fantasy in his head to set the fires and he goes into detail. And I, I know you've heard a couple of the talks and here's what I'll tell you. Here's what I'll tell your listeners is this been to 15 or 18 States to lecture about this case. Uh, The largest group was 1500 fire investigators in the state of Texas. When people hear the stories that we have from him, their jaws drop open. Mine did. I will because they can't imagine they can't imagine the craziness associated with that and my book outlines a good portion of those wow well uh how many i mean i know part of his plea agreement was he had to go along with you guys and point out all of the places he set fires all around the region how many fires did he ultimately admit to setting 353 fires over 27 years Wow. So he'd he, been doing this for a while when you guys picked up on him. Oh, yeah. 20, well, I, uh, he, he, he started setting fires when he was 14. He was 50 when we locked him up. So you do the math. He Quite was not only setting, he was not only setting residential places on fire. He was setting commercial places on fire. And he was setting automobiles on fire. And when we did our ride arounds, um, he would – the detail – of his memory of these incidents was beyond compare. And uh, I can tell you that people, when people started hearing the detail in which he was giving us about incidents that he had done 15 or 20 years ago, they could not believe it. And people would wait in line to be able to ride with us when we were taking him around. Just look, Robbie, you've been in the business and all of your listeners have been in the business for a long, long time. Most of the stuff that we learn about is anecdotal information that's in a book. This was a real, this was a real person who was telling us actually what they did and how they did it. And people that do fire investigations don't get that opportunity. Yep. And to be able to get that and dissect it top to bottom was something. And look, you know, he's a sociopath and sociopaths love to talk. And maybe that makes me one because I love to <laughs> I was talk. just getting ready to say present company excluded from that statement. But, you know, once you dissect everything that they do, it's just invaluable information. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the book. I'll be, be honest with you. I'd, I'd, uh, 
uh, I'd hope to get one before this, but uh, you know, I'll wait for that. And this is a good kind of preview of what what's to come. Uh, I know you've got a website. What 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 can people do today to get in line and pre-order this book and get a copy of it sent to them when they come? Okay, out? well, I appreciate you asking that. They can go to robertmluckett.com. Again, there's many things on there. Eventually, this podcast interview will be on on the site. Awesome. There's some others. The one we did for Bill Fulton is on there. Uh, there's some newspaper articles. There's uh, a bunch of different things that are on there that we'll be able to do, but they can, they can pre-order uh, the book at that site. And um, all the pre-orders will be going out before the end of the month. And awesome. then eventually the book will be for sale, you know, via Amazon and Barnes and Noble and, Goodreads and all these different places. Uh, it'll be available in ebook format here shortly uh, as well. And maybe we'll even do an audio book where some discussion about that. Um, maybe even uh, after it comes out, I get my hands on it and digest it myself. We'll get back together again and maybe dive into I'll, it. That, that'd be fine. And that if, you know, maybe if you want to, I don't know if you have the capability of doing it, but we're doing the same thing for Bill is we're doing a question and answer thing podcast for him um so you know use your imagination if you want me back i'll come back heck heck yeah i do because something we did get into is uh your uh 1972 football season at tc williams and uh, for anybody who knows any movie references that's uh the same football team of remember the titans yeah there's there's just one last thing that i'll i'll talk to you about and and i thought we were going to go into it is um for those of you that are in the fire service, I think that the, the thing that you know the most and where, where we all solve our problems the most is that the dinner table. That that was going to be my, my last question. That's uh, my kind of wrap up question is one lesson. And uh, is that, is that the conversation? So I, I do remember that conversation from another group, but uh, talk about that now to, to set it up. You guys were in an office in a, in well, a, we were, yeah, we man, were in put in an right? agriculture in the agricultural center. We were in a, a uh, four-story brick building in the middle of the woods just for anonymity of it. And in this building, there was a full kitchen. Um, and again, when you bring in a bunch of type A personality people, you don't always get along and see eye to eye. But having worked in the fire service for a long, long time at the time I was assigned to the task force, I knew that we always solved our problems at the dinner table, whether it be coffee in the morning before a shift went off or during dinner or some other occasion, you know, before there was mental health counseling available, that was where the mental health counseling in the fire service has always been done. And the problems of the world and the problems of the department and why somebody got promoted or got, got in trouble was always centered around the, the, dinner table. So I don't know about your departments, but in my departments, Sunday morning breakfast was legendary. And so I took that and whenever we were in a funk and kind of everybody going in a bunch of different directions and everybody pissed off, I would stop at the store on the way into the office and I would buy all the accoutrements to make a, a true firehouse breakfast, pancakes, waffles, sausage, scrapple, 
ham, eggs, whatever it took, coffee, orange juice. And I would go to that kitchen and I would start cooking. This would be before we would do our eight o'clock briefing. So as people were coming in, they were smelling, you know, they were smelling the bacon and, and we would end up having this huge breakfast and over the breakfast table, everybody would kind of come back together and get on the same page through that meal and get refocused. And now if anybody that you may talk to that were part of that task force will tell you, oh yeah, our, our, our morning breakfasts, they're pretty legendary. Uh, you know, we did a lot of different things. We set a lot of problems. And so that's what I would say is one tradition about the fire service that I hope never leaves. And that is breaking bread uh, around the table with anybody that's a brother or sister in public safety. That's usually a good common ground that you can set a lot of issues and get back on track. Yep. And I'll, I'll add in, you know, that, you know, that firehouse tradition in your case involved some of our, uh, brethren from the thin blue line because not everybody involved in that task force was fire service you had a bunch yep. of federal law enforcement and, and police officers are not they don't have that luxury right. they're in their car so you know one guy backs in one guy pulls in they go to some fast food joint and they're passing stuff across the window so the law enforcement you know the, the law enforcement brothers and sisters they were not used to that and you know that and and then when you take 25 people or more at a time that are there for breakfast and you spread the pot around, you know, there's like, there's fan like three bucks and it's all you can eat. Yeah. And so they, yeah. they were, they were in on cheapest that meal on the planet. Yep. There you go. For sure. So, so. well, thanks for sharing that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We'll get back together again when the book's out and I get a chance to dive into it. And uh, I'd be interested to see the details. I've either forgotten from some of the briefings and even some of the newer ones. Cause I'm sure, uh, Sure, your summary in the book's going to delve into stuff that uh, we didn't get into in some of those. Yeah, and I, you know, lessons learned and are in the back, and good and bad things that people consider if they ever get in in that situation themselves. And and I think you would agree, it's not a matter if they're going to have a major investigation like that; it's just a matter of when. And, I, I don't. You know, I agree. We, we had one. We had one in Chesterfield. The guy, he wasn't anywhere near as big as the DC or since I think he wound up getting four or five abandoned buildings before we, we got him. And it was a lot of those same uh, things and challenges you guys had there. I'm sure we had much smaller scale. We were all inside right. of one office, but uh, yeah, maybe we'll get that on here one day too. get a couple yeah, of love to hear it. And that'd be fun. So, so that website again, just uh, make sure everybody is aware. Go to Robert M. Luckett. That's Luckett with two T's, L-U-C-K-E-T-T dot com. And uh, keep keep up on uh, what Bob's got going on. Get in touch with him through that website as well. I think he's got an email address on there if you got anything you yeah. want to share with him. And uh, make sure that uh, you give us a thumbs up and a rating on the podcast platform you're using too. And uh, give me a shout out or a message, if you will, too, if you think this is good or any comments you have. And if you have any questions, maybe shoot them to me as well. And uh, the next time we get together with Bob, hopefully in person in 3D, uh, we can uh, have a have some question and answer sessions. And that uh, email address for me is firehouselogbook at gmail.com. And make sure you follow along on Facebook and Twitter pages as well and Instagram. So, uh, Bob, any any closing remarks, any last words? The only thing I'll say to you, Robbie, is thank you for the opportunity. It's good to see you, brother. And uh, I hope, hope you and your family are safe. And 
everybody get a chance. Uh, keep following this guy. He does great stuff with his podcast. Oh, thanks, Bob. I appreciate it. It's good seeing you. We hadn't, we hadn't talked in quite some time. It's good to catch up. Uh, yes, hopefully sir. we can get it, be together again someday. So I uh, appreciate that.